Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome. Welcome to this latest edition of the Bill Press Pod. Good to have you with us. Government works better when politics works better. That's the simple creed behind the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Since its founding in 1998 by Larry Sabato, the center has grown into one of the top political educational institutions in the country. And Larry Sabato, whom you see often on cable television, is known as one of the nation's leading political analysts. I caught up with Larry Sabato at the beautiful headquarters of the Center for Politics on UVA's campus. Larry knows politics better than anybody I know, and while he is a nonpartisan political commentator, you'll find out that he is no big fan of Donald Trump's. Larry Sabato, it's been a while. It's good to see you. Nice to see you, Bill. Here at the University of Virginia, Center for Politics. Going strong? We're, we're trying. We have a lot of things happening here. And politics still alive. Well, our slogan used to be politics is a good thing. I've changed it to politics can be a good thing. I think it fits the era. It can still be a good It's nice to start on that hopeful can. note. <laughs> it no longer is. You can't take that for granted anymore. Uh, well, let's dive right into the, the politics. Of, have we ever seen anything in politics like we've seen in the um, this week, the last couple of days. Uh, well, you know, of course, you're too young to remember Watergate, but during Watergate, uh, I think there were plenty of weeks like this. But the difference is, as bad as Nixon was, and all the terrible things he did, we don't have time to recount them. But uh, there's never been a president like Donald Trump, and I don't mean that as a compliment. Uh, and so, everything that can happen either has happened or will happen because he'll force it to happen. Uh, the, he'll be a permanent example of American history of what not to do. The memorandum or the notes or whatever of his transcript with President Zelensky of, uh, of the Ukraine, the, the president tweeted out, oh, now that they've seen the transcript, Democrats are going to apologize. This completely exonerates me. You read the transcript. It was five pages. What was your take? It was damning. Look, no one can read that and not interpret this as a quid pro quo. Uh, you don't have to use the words quid and quo to get a quid pro quo. Any idiot can read that and understand exactly what he was saying. And the president of Ukraine clearly understood uh, he was clever about sidestepping it to the extent he could. He was depending on America for a lot of money. He even did it uh, at the United Nations when he and Trump had a press conference together. He was very careful. He wouldn't let Trump put those words in his mouth. No pressure, no pressure, which is his new substitute for no collusion, no collusion. It's the same old script. And for his base, that's enough. And, I mean, clearly, as you say, he didn't say quid pro quo. He said, I need a favor. <laughs> yeah, right. And I need you to talk to my attorney general. Yes, which, which we need to get to the bottom of. Everyone needs to know. 
was this guy involved at all? And it's actually damning just to consider that Trump would invoke him. He's so certain of Barr's support. He wouldn't have done that with Jeff Sessions, that's for sure. And right. Sessions was no liberal. I've never seen him take a liberal stand on anything. So we need you to talk to uh, the attorney general about how we can get some political dirt on my potential Democratic opponent and while you're at it, talk to my hatchet man, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, and, and kept saying, Giuliani's a great guy. You're just going to love him. Uh, if he Googled Giuliani, he'd get the other side of the story. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a clear case of a president inviting in the head of a foreign government, not very far from Russia, uh, into our next campaign. Did he learn nothing from two years of investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election? And of course the answer is no. Right. No. And then we have, and we know about this because uh, a member of the intelligence community, what's your thought then, a member of the intelligence community listening in on the phone call who is so alarmed by what he hears that he files a whistleblower complaint? Well, there are a lot of rumors going around today about uh, who it might be, and the best guess from people I trust is a CIA officer, which right there is going to add some credibility if that turns out to be true. Uh, so uh, what does it say? It says that even someone who probably is of a conservative orientation, that would be my guess, uh, who has worked in the bureaucracy for many, many years, in the intelligence bureaucracy, had never heard anything like this. This is what everyone says who's been around the system for a long time. This has never happened before. Nixon tried to do it in 1968, running as a non-incumbent. He tried to foul up and did foul up the negotiations with the president of South Vietnam for a peace treaty, and that was wrong. But this is an incumbent president who holds in his hands not just all the powers of the office, but also a ton of money that foreign governments want. And that was his leverage. This is absolutely outrageous. And I'm shocked, as always, that everybody doesn't agree on this much. Do you think it crosses the line to impeachable offense? Oh, of course it does. Look, Congress determines what an impeachable offense is. Treason, <laughs> this might qualify. Bribery, in some respects. High crimes and misdemeanors, certainly. And a con every Congress gets to interpret what that language means. And I think the House will interpret it correctly in this case and will, in the end, impeach him unless material comes out that we can't imagine right now, and I don't think it exists that would exonerate him. Do you think Nancy Pelosi <clears throat> did the right thing in kind of applying the brakes on impeachment until this broke? Absolutely. Well, look, I trust her judgment. She's been around a long time. Doesn't mean she's perfect. Doesn't mean she always makes the right decisions. But I do think in this case, she had a good sense of critical mass. And she waited until the critical mass was there. And it only happened uh, really because of this new uh, controversy involving the Ukraine. And the tipping point was the group of uh, moderate suburban Democrats elected in November of, of uh, 2018 who published an op-ed piece uh, saying it's time to go to impeachment. And she helped with the piece, apparently. I didn't know this until very recently. She helped them frame it. And it looks like that the Democrats have decided, with under Pelosi's leadership, that the focus of the impeachment inquiry is going to be the call with Zelensky, the the, the promise of uh, we'll give you some help if you help us in our political campaign. 
and all the other stuff that they've been looking at, not going to be forgotten, but will be back burner, let's say. Yes. Is that a right, right, right approach for Democrats? It, it absolutely is. And I know some are disappointed and they'd like to focus on the terrible treatment of immigrant children and the payoff to the women. And there are loads of things that you could include in this. But if you throw in everything, including the kitchen sink, it's going to dilute the impact of the most important item, which is this, it is the Ukraine. Uh, so I think she's made the right decision. The other reason is, very shortly, we're going to be right in the midst of voting for a presidential campaign. And you do not want this overlapping with the presidential campaign simply because it will be the black hole attracting all media sunlight. The candidates won't get any sunlight. You've already seen their story fade from the front pages while this is going on. Larry, let's look at the big picture because uh, you and I agree we're going to, I was in Charlottesville, be able to sit down and talk and haven't seen each other in a while and talk about the political landscape for 2020. Now there's a big new fat reality that has taken over since we agreed to sit down, and that is this impeachment battle. How is that going to impact, do you see? We don't know for sure yet, it's too early, but how do you think it's going to impact the whole 2020 election cycle? Well, as you say, I wish I knew, and, and I think it's very difficult to project out because there's so many variables, but I don't think Trump is one of the variables. Uh, I think it's obvious what he will say and do, regardless of the facts, and it's also pretty clear already what some of the key facts are. To me, the bigger variable will be how the Democrats handle this. And if they listen to Nancy Pelosi, they're going to be in better shape than they would be otherwise. She wants to keep this focused squarely on the Ukraine business because it's so outrageous to anyone who actually sits down, listens, and understands it. Um, it would be a giant mistake to diversify, to go into all the critical issues about Trump. There isn't enough time. I hope somehow she can focus this, uh, even with just the Ukraine business, to finish it before the uh, voting starts, uh, February 3rd in Iowa. That's ideal because you want to separate uh, impeachment from the actual campaign. Also, just in case it doesn't go well, because we know in the end, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with people who are suggesting the Senate is somehow going to be moved. Get real. Uh, I don't think you'll have more than three or four Republican senators, if any, voting to oust Trump in the end. Maybe you'll have a couple Democrats voting to, to save him, but you're not going to get to 67 votes. So given that, and given the inevitability that Trump will declare that as vindication, you know, a giant victory, that he wasn't formally ousted despite everything that's come out, you want to make sure that people have forgotten a bit about it, that it's settled before the election, so that the effect will be clear. And the effect is going to be this, energizing both sides. And that's okay for Democrats because they're the ones with the problem of energization, as you know far better than I do. You can't get some of the key core Democratic constituency groups to turn up in the numbers of the Trump base, as we saw in 2016. So I think Democrats will actually benefit from this lifting of the enthusiasm level across the board. Does this then become even more of a referendum on Donald Trump? Yeah, well, I think that's inevitable. Even if this had never happened, he's such a strong figure. And you love him or you hate him. I have yet to meet a single person who hasn't 
had a strong opinion on Donald Trump, who hasn't made up his or her mind about Trump. And it's it's just never changed. Every now and then, you, you'll come across somebody who says, well, you know, I voted for him because I didn't like Hillary Clinton, but I'll never make that mistake again. But it's relatively rare. And similarly, you don't hear people saying, well, you know, the economy's gone so well, I'm just going to go for him again. No, everybody is in the trenches. They're in their trench, and nobody's going to cross no man's land. In the short term, does this help Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren? Or does it sort of... Well, here's I've been thinking about that, and that's yeah. the one I'm really undecided about. Because on the one hand, this is not good news for Joe Biden. That is, uh, so many people are saying incorrectly that there was some kind of great corruption here with Biden and his son. And everything I've read to this point suggests there's nothing there. Uh, so, But it makes a, that bubble up again. Yeah, it right. makes it bubble up again. On the other hand, and this is what I want to see among Democrats, do they rally around the flag, meaning Biden? You know, notice when he spoke mm -hmm. a few days ago, he had the flags behind him like he was president, which is the right thing to do. But will they rally around him because their great foe, Donald Trump, is not just attacking Biden all the time. He tried to enlist another foreign leader to interfere and pointed at Biden. It suggests Biden really is the one he doesn't want to run against. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe there'll be some of both. Uh, it may even out. I just don't know. It, it seems that the other Democratic Democratic candidates may be less likely to go after Biden now, at least again, in the short term. For a while. But, and they have to say, they have to defend him. I mean, they can't just say, shame on Donald Trump. They're, they're going to be asked, well, what about the charges against Biden? So they have to defend him. And if they defend him, if they ever get around to criticizing him for it, then you just play the tape. Right. Uh, so definitely impact at the presidential level. How about for Senate races? Is this going to put some of these vulnerable senators really you know, at risk, how, well, how they vote? It, it depends on how this turns, because by the end of it, people will either be convinced that Trump has got to go, no matter how the Senate votes, or they will think that it isn't necessary, they should have deferred, they're not dealing with the issues I care about. And I don't know, again, how it will end up. Some There'll be some on both sides, but we'll have to see how many on both sides. The Senate races are interesting because, for the most part, they're in either heavily blue or heavily red states. You only have a handful that are truly competitive. And that's why I say what actually happens in the end and how it is spun and what people believe will determine which party benefits from it. Now, it's hard to say aside from impeachment because it is, it is such a big uh, Other than that, issue. Mrs. Lincoln had to like to play. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> but in general, has the political landscape changed since 2016? You're, the landscape has changed in a lot of ways simply because of Trump's incumbency and because of the daily outrages. If you read the tweets or hear about them and what people say, and you know, in retrospect, I honestly think a lot of the Trump voters who weren't in the core base had no idea that he would never adjust at all to being president of the United States. I'll admit myself, I thought there was a chance that he would make a turn and become more acceptable, not necessarily to me, but to enough people in the middle. The pivot. He's gotten worse. 
You know, he hasn't gotten better. He's gotten worse. So that that has changed, and I think it makes people more open to uh, canceling a one-term president. So do you see that change in the key heartland states that where Hillary should have done better and didn't? And it uh, wasn't that many votes, but if you total up to Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois and Pennsylvania, whatever, uh, that's the key area, it seems. Yes, still, correct. yes. I, I, I do think that unless things collapse for the Democrats, they will carry Michigan. That was only 11,000 votes, which is nothing in Michigan. Uh, I think they have a better than 50-50 chance, but not, not much better than 50-50 to take Pennsylvania in the end. Wisconsin may well decide the entire election, at least in some calculations that's true. And oddly enough, same for Arizona, which is hmm. changing just the way that Colorado did, and to a lesser degree Virginia did in moving in the Democratic direction, much faster than Georgia, for example, or Texas. Uh, so when you look at the, at the big picture of this, I think Trump has overall lost ground which is amazing considering the economy. It's not perfect. There are always problems with a you know, $24 trillion a year economy. But considering where we were for a long period of time, that should benefit an incumbent. If this were a normal incumbent, he'd be at 60%. This guy, can, this guy can't get over 50. I don't think he ever will because he's so obnoxious. The, the most revealing polling number I've seen in recent times was that NBC Wall Street Journal poll that showed 69%, almost 70% of Americans don't like him, regardless of whether they approve of his performance. Have you ever heard of such a thing for a president? Jimmy Carter was well-liked. He didn't get reelected. But people, a lot of the people who've been defeated, George H.W. Bush was still liked, even right. though he was defeated. Yeah. So that's important, I think. It, it kind of goes with the office and almost reflects people's respect for the presidency. right? <laughs> yes, that as they, opposed to Donald Trump. Exactly, yeah. right. So <clears throat> do you see that the results of 2018, Democrats taking back the House, indicates again that the maybe the political the movement or is shifting in yes. the favor of Democrats. The, the key point there is that, that the critical votes in the House that were provided by the voters were in suburban areas disproportionately from suburban white women and a surprising percentage of non-college white women as well. If even... I'd say 60, 65% of them stick, the ones who switched, stick with Democrats in 2020. They ought to win the presidency. Uh, that was the biggest change, the most important change, because these were the people, amazingly, who defected from Hillary Clinton. Uh, you'd think that the potential of having the first woman president might have kept many of the college-educated mm -hmm. women, at least, in the fold, but uh, if they were white, but it didn't happen. What's the Democrats' best message? Is it just... Mm. Um We've got the worst guy we've ever had in the White House. We've got to get him out. Anti-Trump. Just the other day, had a big debate in my class. I actually learned so much from these kids because they don't have the the history and the and the baggage that the rest of us have. Uh, but there was an almost even split. There was nobody for Trump. I mean, literally nobody in this in class your, among is, students among students is for Trump. Some of them don't like the Democrats, but they're not for Trump. But they split almost evenly between. Just pick the person who has the best chance to, to win, to beat Trump. Don't take any chances. Let's just get this big thing done. He's got to go. 
The other side of it was, well, you get rid of Trump, but what do you get? Why go to all this effort? Why spend all this money? Why use all this energy if you're not going to actually get X, Y, and Z in policy terms? And you can make a good case for either side of it. Being older, I'm with the former rather than the latter. I, I don't need much more than a victory. You know, I'm, I'm at that point in life. But they're arguing that it's got to be a mix of both. And would you half agree? Of About half of them. Well, sure, you want you will get big policy changes. Let's say Biden, who, who may be status quo, pre-Trump pre status quo. That is, do pretty much what Obama did. Well, that's going to take up a whole term to reverse all of these changes, big and, and small, that Trump and all of his appointees have made day after day after day, much of which we don't even hear about. Regulations that have a major impact. And as you know, the press doesn't do a good job of following the regulatory process. Sadly. Sadly. Sadly, they should. Uh, and also, I must say, not, not trying to defend the media, but there is so much. Look, I still cover the White House. It's like the fire hose. There is so much coming to you every single yes. day. The story changes almost every hour that there are a lot of stories that would get maybe a week's bit of coverage that are hard to get any coverage at all because before you can explore that one, Donald Trump's out with another and, outrage. And that is one of Trump's greatest skills, whether you like him or not. I've never seen anybody in any field better at deflection because if he sees a bad story, and he instinctively knows if it's a bad story, whatever he says publicly, he will come out with, with some shiny object which nobody can resist because we're all like that. And then by the time we finish discussing the shiny object, we've forgotten about the more important story. Absolutely. No, I, <laughs> I suffer that and complain about it and lament it uh, every single day. We're talking with Larry Sabato at the Center for Politics. And our podcast today is brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. They're the great men and women who uh, serve us and help us out at all of our nation's great retail grocery stores around the country under the leadership of Mark Perrone. Uh, the UFCW, their website is ufcw.org. Check out their website, and we give them a great big thank you for their good work around the country and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you 
where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back here at the University of Virginia at the Great Center for Politics with uh, founder uh, and CEO and president and I don't know. Emperor. Emperor. Yeah, I prefer the <laughs> term emperor. Thank Sabato. you for asking. <laughs> I want to take a look at this Democratic primary. It, it seems that everybody's saying now, boy, the momentum is with Elizabeth Warren. She is, Bernie is sinking. Joe Biden is just holding on. Elizabeth Warren is just climbing up every day. Is is this? Do you see it that way? Is she, you know, the front runner now? No, I, I think at best for her and really for Biden at this point, you could call them co-front runners. Uh, and I, I think people always assume that what is happening today will continue to happen tomorrow and next week and next month and six months from now. And we've already forgotten this race. Yes, started out with Biden in front, but then. Who caught him for a while? Kamala Harris. And then she faded for various and sundry reasons. Not to say she can't come back, but she faded. And even before that, Pete Buttigieg was moving up fast and getting more media attention than the whole field put together. These things can change quickly. And those of us who've been around for a while, remember that. Others, as I say, believe that today is the future. Today is not the future. It almost never is. And the, the contrast people make is, a bit, again, between the co-front runners, as you call them. Okay, Elizabeth Warren has the excitability. Joe Biden's got the electability. Yes. Is that a fair comment? No, that's a fair comment. And I would say... So which one wins out? <laughs> well, if Biden doesn't rev up the effort, it, it certainly will be Elizabeth Warren. I mean, he has to show more fire than I've seen. Maybe I've missed some good speeches, but... Uh, he's got a great advantage with African-Americans. You can't possibly win a Democratic nomination for president without coming close to carrying a majority of African-Americans or a plurality of African-Americans. But the other uh, advantage that I think Biden, uh, Biden has in this race is a predictability. You're, you're not going to get a flood of new ideas. You're going to get gaffes. And in the Trump age, do they amount to anything? I don't think so. I don't even think garden variety scandals amount to anything anymore. We, we let them go in 24-hour period. So he's, he's got some, some advantages that Elizabeth Warren doesn't have. But she has the big advantage of intensity and enthusiasm, particularly among younger people. Although you have to say, and this is the advantage of, of being uh, uh, upper middle age, uh, Bill, as we are, upper, upper middle age, uh, voters over 60 are the ones who always vote. 
and they're pretty substantially, not totally, pretty substantially for Biden. If given a choice between young people and old people, I'd always pick young people because otherwise I'd be out of a job. But I think everybody else who looks at politics would say you'd much rather have the support of older voters. They'll show up in large numbers. They're very reliable. And young people are more engaged, engaged in this election than I've seen since Obama first ran. But that still doesn't mean they'll come anywhere close to the voter turnout of older voters. And there's some people who do. I even hear some Democrats say that America may be uh, burned by 2016, say that America is just not ready to elect a woman, particularly a progressive woman as president. Well, you hear that a lot. But you know what? It's going to be true until it isn't, until you know a progressive woman is elected. I think there that was not Hillary's major problem in 2016. There were there were other things, and never forget, as you know better than anybody, because of California as much as anything else, she won by three million votes and would have been president in any other presidential system in the entire world. But we have the electoral college, so that's that's my counter argument that maybe there was some anti-woman president, but we should a prejudice rather some anti-woman mm-hmm. prejudice, but we should never forget. In any other society, she would have won the election, and she did win the popular vote, and it does matter, despite all the Republicans constantly talking about the Electoral College. It matters whether you have popular support. Uh, as you pointed out, right, uh, so today is not necessarily the future. Um, it is far from over yet, but you have to just look at the poll. Bernie Sanders has fallen, and Elizabeth Warren has overtaken him, for now at least, in the progressive lane. And yet Bernie ran the last time, had this built-in, now coming into 2020, donor base and grassroots activist base. What happened? He got older. Um, he is not upper middle class. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> he, oh, he is upper middle class. Yeah, right. He is not, uh, he is not uh, upper, middle. upper middle aged. Uh, he would be really, I think, well into his 80s by the end of the, of the first term, at least 81, 82. I don't want to say that a certain age is too old, but I think that's approaching it. I really do. Uh, 80 to me is the ceiling. Now, I'll feel differently when I'm 79, but I'm just telling you, it's uh, for most voters, that's a bridge too far. I think that's a big piece of it. Also, Democrats at some level don't believe he can win. And the shifting from 2016 when they thought they couldn't lose to 2020 when they have nightmares every evening about losing to Trump again. That's another change in atmosphere. Now, I know here at the center, because I talk to you often, and to Kyle Kondik, your yes. man in Washington. Yes, excellent. Um, you not only keep track of the national scene, the presidential scene, but you look at every House race and every Senate race. We're sick. We're very, very <laughs> sick. Um, tell us how you read the House. I'll be very, very surprised if Democrats lose the House. I don't know whether they'll gain seats or lose seats, but at 235, and given where Democrats represent now, I think they've got a very good chance to hold the House. And under the right conditions, they could add a fair number of seats. They're available. And, of course, if you add seats in the House and you're winning the presidency, you're going to do very well in a lot of the legislative seats, as they did in 2018, and then suddenly redistricting looks a lot better for you in 2021 than it did in 2011. So it just has implications for an entire decade. 
so that's where I see the, ha- the House of Representatives right now as being uh, likely to stay Democratic. I want to defer whether they add or lose seats, uh, but I think that's where it is. Is there a prayer that Democrats could take the Senate? There's a prayer. There is a path. It depends on winning the presidency and not depending solely on a few blue states. I mean, that's really critical. You, you have to broaden out from the blue states. You have to win those purple states. And Hillary, by small margins, lost a lot of the purple states. And it cost, it cost in the Senate and it cost in the House. Uh, Democrats were supposed to add seats in both places and, and just didn't do as well as expected or didn't add as many as, as we expected them to add. So there's a path. But good things for them have to happen. Maybe Doug Jones has to survive, which can happen if the Republicans nominate the same candidate again. Uh, They have to be sure and knock off Cory Gardner. He's Mm -hmm. the most vulnerable Republican. I think they probably will now that they've got former Governor Hickenlooper running. But they need some other surprising wins. Arizona, they absolutely have to carry. That is a real chance to pick up with uh, Gabriel uh, Gifford's uh, husband, the former astronaut, Kelly. to Mark mm-hmm. Kelly. I think he's got a good chance uh, to knock off the appointed incumbent, Martha McSally. And Maine. Maine has stuck with Susan Collins. But Trump, and she's voted frequently with Trump, and a certain Supreme Court justice, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who got appointed, that has broken the tie between Susan Collins and many uh, Democrats in Maine. So I think that's a real opportunity. And there are others, Tom Tillis in, in uh, North Carolina. You've got two seats up in Georgia. Granted, in history, almost always when you have a double-barreled Senate election, they both go in the same party direction. But there are a few exceptions, and you mm-hmm. can have a very close election with a few thousand votes in one direction, adding a Republican and a Democrat. So there are a lot of other seats that could change hands. And you mentioned uh, reapportionment and the importance of the legislative races, also the importance of the governor's races. Yes, right? absolutely. So, and Democrats, Democrats have improved their number of governors. but Yes, and they, they have to do better still in the future, and they certainly have to hold on to gains like North Carolina. And they've got an incumbent now, Roy Cooper, who barely won, but he's an incumbent, and he's well ahead in the polls, and I would expect him to win a second term. Yeah. In, in terms of, you and I have been around politics uh, a long time, uh, and understand, I think, the importance of it, and love being part Absolutely. of the political picture. What else is there? Is there another subject? <laughs> I always tell students there's only one major politics. Uh, and yet people lament the fact today that this country is politically so divided and it's so ugly and it's so partisan. Um, have you ever seen it this bad or do you think it's bad? And do you well, think it's, it can it's get polarized. better? <laughs> it's polarized, Bill. There's no question about that. And it's. I think the people who study that that very subject say it is worse than either the period right after the Civil War or the period at the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries. And they have the data to back that up. But uh, And so other people add the late 60s and early 70s as another very polarized period. You know what the big difference is? In the other periods, you had conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats and moderate Democrats, and you had conservative Republicans and moderate Republicans and liberal Republicans. And that meant to get anything passed, you really needed a coalition most of the time of both parties. Some wing of this party added to the wing of the other party. That encouraged bipartisanship. 
And today, you can't find them, the Democrats and Republicans talking together in the hallways because they'll be criticized by their leadership. And it wasn't that long ago. I moderated a panel recently with Trent Lott and Tom Daschle. We've had them here. They got things done. Absolutely. Right? Bob Dole and George Mitchell, they got things done. They worked together. Can we get back to that? Oh, sure. It, it can happen. It's not going to happen while Donald Trump is president. That's for sure. And then the Republican Party is going to have to somehow transform itself into a moderate conservative party again. Because if it continues to go to the right or even stays where it is, there, there's very little basis for compromise with Democrats on anything. It isn't just social issues. It's everything. So, and I'm not saying Democrats can't change in some places, too. I, I think Democrats have got to start to become more tolerant of having Democratic candidates who have a different philosophy than deeply blue state Democrats. They can afford to be liberal on everything. Some of the other Democrats can't, like the Democratic governor of Louisiana, who happens to be pro-life on abortion. Obviously, that's not where the Democratic Party is, but it helped to get him elected, and it may very well help to get him reelected. What would you rather have, a Democratic governor of Louisiana or a right-wing Republican governor of Louisiana? And you mentioned the, uh, the Republican Party. Donald Trump recently tweeted, oh, the Democrats, are, particularly he was talking about uh, Chairman Adam Schiff, they've been trying to destroy the Republican Party for three years. We can't let this happen. We have to save the Republican Party. Larry, the Republican Party we see today is not the Republican Party you and I once knew oh, not that long ago, a Republican nor a Republican that I once worked for in California. Yes. No, this, we, we might as well change the name of the Republican Party to the Trump Party because that's what it is now. Even the incumbents in the Senate and House and governors who don't like Trump pretend to like Trump because they fear him. They fear a tweet, and there's a reason for it. They'd probably be defeated or at least have a serious challenge in their primaries. Who wants to go through that if they're politicians and they can avoid it? So that Republican Party, again, whatever moderate, whatever reasonable, whatever you want to call it, responsible, is it gone forever? Can it come back? There's some people think, we just get Trump out of the way, and then when we can restore that party. I think it would be very difficult to go back, but... It's possible in this sense. When a party loses, if the Republicans lose in 2020 and it comes down ticket and a lot of people lose because of Trump, or even if they lose in 2024 and they lose a couple times because it takes at least two whacks on the head with a two-by-four, whether you're a student mm -hmm. or whether you are a political party. Sometimes it takes three whacks on the head with a two-by-four. Uh, a party wakes up. And they've had enough time out of power so that they finally say, you know, our choice is remaining powerless from now until eternity or changing our party in ways that are popular. They almost always change the party I mean, because people determine elections. And if, uh, if some people have, have told me the answer to that question is what happens in 2020? Four years of Donald Trump, we can recover. Eight years of Donald Trump. Forget about well, it. Well, eight years of Donald Trump is going to produce an economic boom for Canada because a lot of people <laughs> will be moving to some lovely places in Canada. <laughs> and, and, and we'll see what happens in the United States. I'll tell you one thing, though. Um, the, the one thing that uh, Donald Trump has provided 
is a lot of grist for your mill and for my mill. Uh, a, yes. a lot to worry about, but also a lot to talk about. No, that's absolutely true, although I'd be happy to save my breath. Larry Sabato, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Bill. I really enjoyed the talk. And that's a wrap for this week's podcast. You are a big part of it, so we thank you again so much for joining us. And please, if you haven't already done so, please become a Bill Press Pod subscriber and reviewer. Again, it's free and it's easy. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or tune in. Search for the Bill Press Pod, click to subscribe, and then give another click to give us a five-star review. You know, with every subscriber and with every review, we gain more and more listeners and keep growing the podcast every week. So thanks so much for your help and support. Thanks again to Larry Sabato. Thanks to all of you for listening. Meanwhile, stay strong. Keep fighting the good fight. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.